Internet. I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, we got ourselves another Super Mega Awesome Movie Review Madness! 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 I think I forgot to put this on last week's episode, but uh, yeah, we've got another one in a row because we've got a whole bunch coming out. In fact, next week looks even bigger. So uh, for this week's episode, we've got Happy Death Day, the horror movie take on the Groundhog's Day premise. The Foreigner, based on the book The Chinaman. Marshall, the uh, biopic of Thurgood Marshall in one of his early cases. Professor Marston and the Wonder Women, a biopic about the creation of Wonder Woman, and the HBO documentary Spielberg. So, let's get started. Apologize for commenting on the look of an actress and the look like how old an actress looks. That 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 definitely comes off as very condescending. However, given the fact that the lead actress in this movie, Jessica Roth, uh, is thirty, is a year older than I am, then yeah, I'm gonna call it out. She should not. She is, does not look like she should be playing coed a coed. She should not be playing an undergrad. Like, this might this premise might make more sense for her if it was a med school. Like, if she was going to med school. If they had established that that's what she was studying. They don't really. She's just assumed to be a She's a sorority sister, so she's up for the undergrad. Unless, I, I, my, uh, my college didn't have a, uh, a graduate program. So at least not, at least, uh, not, you know, not that, uh, not not like big ones, you know, there may have been, I think they started adding some by the time I graduated, but there weren't a lot of graduate level studies there. And at the same time, I don't know if graduate students are allowed in sorority and in Greek to, to um, participate in Greek life. I don't think that, I think that's counterintuitive actually, because Greek life requires a lot of your time and effort, but graduate school requires a lot more and it's a lot more expensive. So they're assuming that she, I'm assuming that she's supposed to be an undergrad, like a senior. And she does not, both her and the, one of the girls, one of the other heads of the sorority that she's in, they don't look like co-eds. They look like women my age. And I'm a decade out of, co- I'm a decade out of high school. And I'm about, and I'm, so I'm about six years out of college. So I should not be playing a college student, honestly. You know, you have to look that young. And unfo- and not th- nothing against these women. They're fine act. I'm sure they can be fine actresses in other parts. But after a certain point, you, you just it's like it's the same thing with like Luke Perry playing a high school kid. No, people. So, sometimes it's just better to cast people within that age bracket if it's age. If it like you don't want a. 12, a, a 13-year-old playing a 9-year-old. Same thing with this. You don't want a 30-year-old trying to play a high school or a college kid. That That's not going to work most of the time. You could, especially if this, this not, there's not like an underage thing that they need to worry about. They can hire actual college kids. Why is a 30-year-old playing a college student? 
anyway, um, yeah, that was my biggest gripe with the trailer from from day one was these people look like they're my age. They should not be trying to play co-eds. And then we got into the premise, which is yes, the ground. This is the second attempt at trying to tell the Groundhog's Day premise in a different light. And that it's 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 a cheat to say that it's the Groundhog's Day premise because I think we've had this kind of same day. I feel like this was a Twilight Zone storyline at some point, but the idea that you live the same day over and over again until something happens. And then, but this time around, it's supposed to be a slasher movie and the girl's supposed to find out who her killer is. That's a solid premise for like a trashy, campy slasher movie, but no, this, this, this movie, this movie is a, is in the weird spot of not going far enough to be campy bad, but not being good enough to be considered a good horror movie. Like I said, the premise here is We've got a a sorority girl who is about to, who is celebrating her birthday, and they and her friends are going to be throwing a big party. And on the night of her birthday, she's murdered, and she keeps waking up um, and having to relive the same day over and over again. And she decides to use that time to try and track down who her murderer is. Except all the events play out the same exact. Uh, Real Gino was the one I listened to who pointed this out. The events play the exact same way, whether she, you know, despite the fact that there's supposed to be a schedule. Like, if she's early, she should be able to beat the schedule that that was set the first day. But it follows that same schedule over and over again. And for some reason, it, it, it like, they never thought about how change, slight changes in when she leaves the room, the room she wakes up in would affect the the events of the of the of, her, of the day like it, it, they they expect it to play the exact same way every single time but unless she leaves at exactly the same time this is the problem with things like that involve time that <laughs> every, anytime you try to do uh time manipulation in a story that it always ends in something like that but it, uh yeah it's yeah but at the same time this isn't trying to be smart i mean uh this is Scott Labdell writing, and I think he's a comic book writer by trade. Let me pull him up. Yeah, he's, he wrote on the 90s X-Men comics. And uh, he also wrote Man of the House. Weird. So this guy's a comic book writer. And, but, yeah, but the same, but so, and is his uh his his screenwriting is not up to par like this something like something this kooky like he might have he might be able to work some of these premises in like a comic book setting but how do you get tied to both man of the house and happy death day weird anyway um it's, it's it could be an interesting premise. It could be an interesting slasher movie. The idea that you have to relive the same day over and over again and get murdered over and over again until you find out who your killer is. It's an interesting idea. Except all the cool stuff that they could do with it is completely brushed over. Like, it doesn't go campy and gory enough to be like a traditional 80s era slasher movie. 
but it but at the same time it's not written well enough to be a good horror movie because the character dialogue is garbage and the acting isn't all much better and you know like Jessica Roth who you know is who may be a fun actress maybe a good actress in a better role but here like she's like the idea is supposed to be that this um jerky sorority girl it will get get their entire life turned around and it's the same problem with before i fall the idea being that a terror were whereas before i fall is a girl realizing her action how her actions affect those around her but she wasn't a terrible person she was kind of you know kind of a kind of a jerk but at the same point she wasn't like reprehensible here she's just like straight up a, a, a snot like a stuck up pain and the, the idea that oh reliving the same day over and over again like day one second well day two technically day two of her reliving the same day suddenly turns her completely around into being a good person but like it it should not be that easy Char character development should not be that easy she should be a pain and a jerk to people until about halfway through the movie like th it this movie at least has the has the um you know the meta sense about it to recognize that it is copying Groundhog's Day but that's the thing Groundhog's Day having never seen it which is another blind spot in my mind. I do need to go see Groundhog's Day at some point. Maybe for actual Groundhog's Day. Uh, but yeah, the Groundhog's Day, Bill Murray is a jerk until the third act, I believe. He's a jerk for the entirety of the movie, for the most part, until he starts to realize him being the jerk is the problem. They don't have that here. They don't try to make her real... Like, she automatically realizes that her that she's been a jerk and she automatically turns her, turns it around and be and starts acting nice to people that's not interesting that's kind of boring and yeah so i mean whatever kind of interesting kind of kind of storytelling you wanted to do tell with this premise this reliving the same day over and over again premise it's not really tackled that well it's not really delved into really that deeply i mean it's the good, like I said, the good stuff, the idea of her learning things about her, like one of one of the boyfriend, one of these boys she went on a date with and learning things about her sorority sisters and learning and trying to make amends for her actions previously. All of that is kind of quick, quickly brushed over. And like there's a whole montage set to Confident by Demi Lovato which could have made for a really interesting act. Like an entire act could have been this, get, get a been her trying to figure out who her killer is. But nope, it's just completely brushed over. And we focus on really mund more mundane aspects of it. Like they're trying, like it wants to focus more on her hooking up with, like not, with, an, with a guy who lives in the dorm. So maybe like a freshman or a sophomore. And that focuses so much on their relationship that it just like all it does is all it does is let you know i mean we knew from 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 scene one that they were going to end up together but they just hammer it home every single time and it's boring like make it so that they end up friends they don't end up dating 
make that make it interesting. But yeah, it's 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 this is lame. This is not this is and the problem is like I said because I'm pretty sure this is PG thirteen. Yeah, PG thirteen. That's the thing. Uh, I'm you don't have to make all all slasher movies R. But the best slasher movies are R-rated because it allows for more blood and guts and gore. That's what. That's why you make a slasher movie. You can't make it. What do you? I mean, if it's PG-13, you might as well make it for TV. It's it's boring. I mean, heck, you probably could do better for TV on some of the cable channels. Why are you? Why are we making this PG-13? Like, if you want to make a slasher movie, have interesting kills. Have you know? And that's the other thing. The killer in this. Uses a mask for the mascot, which could be interesting. You could have a you know a mascot face mask as your killer. That could be interesting. They went with a baby. They were so set on this idea of a baby-faced killer that they made the college mascot a baby. I've heard of many, many things being a college mascot. Colors, like uh, Kent State has the golden flashes. Uh, various animals, beavers, rabbits, you know, things of that nature, warriors a lot of times. Usually it's tougher animals or warriors. Some, I've heard hornets, bees, things like that, things that are dangerous, things that are that sound imposing. Or sometimes it's something more traditional that's more, that, like tied into their history. Like I think one of the uh, Ivy Leagues is like the Gamecocks or something. You know, it's a, it's a rooster because it ties into their history. What college in their right mind would have a baby? As its mascot. Like a literal baby. Like an infant. Why would that be a mascot? You know, that's the thing. I can understand this being like a, lo a local favorite Halloween mask or something, you know? Make it like a silly Halloween mask that is popular this year or something, you know? Like, maybe it's tied to a viral video. But why is it the mascot? Why would a baby be a college's mascot? It's little, it's things like that where it's like complete. It's the way they try to explain it is so inept that it makes you wonder if they ever, if they cared at all about trying to make this universe coherent. And for the most part, no, no, they do not. And uh, yeah, happy death day. I was expecting something bad, and and it wasn't painful like I expected it to be. It, it was just boring. And as far as horror movies go, boring is one of the, well. That's the other thing. It tries to play itself more as a comedy. Scott Lobdell is trying to play this, play the comedy up heavy in this in his, in the writing, and like they're they really try to push jokes and quippy humor. And unfortunately, it's not that well written. Like you needed, I feel like you needed a second writer to really like get somebody who who writes better punch up. Than Scott Lobdell to punch up the took the comedy in this, or maybe they did. Who knows? And this was the best they come up with. At any rate, Happy Death Day was not a happy birthday present to me because it, this is this is the weekend before my actual birthday, and I got stuck with this for a movie present. Thanks, Hollywood. Somebody say a prayer for me. Yes, I do. Do you? It was safe here. I wouldn't count on it. Oh, 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 oh. 
as I've been mentioning, this movie's uh, uh, source material is, in fact, entitled The Chinaman. Somebody, some publisher somewhere out there, whoever published this, was cool with having a book put out with their name, with their company's name on it, called The Chinaman. And I have no idea what the book is about. It seems to be about the same premise. It's basically taken, but with a Vietnamese, former Viet Cong uh, lead, lead character and... The IRA. I can understand Jackie Chan wanting to go the taken route of the older, wizened sort of, got, you know, a man of many skills going out and taking revenge for a wrong that was done to him. Unfortunately, this movie isn't about that. As much as the machinations of the IRA trying to re trying to continue their crusade against Britain and have a united Ireland. See, that's my hang-up for this. This is why I can't get into it, because I mean I don't I don't know I'm not I and I, I don't live on the on Ireland. I don't live on the entire I I you know, I'm not privy to the uh, to Irish politics that much, but I, from what I've gleaned from listening to BBC and the like, that most of the people are kind of over the troubles and don't want violence to erupt again on either side. Neither side wants to wants things to erupt back into violence. In fact, they would much rather have, you know, ha do, do things diplomatically and politically than anything else. So... So why the IRA? Like of all the like you think you picture London bombings. You imagine young Middle Eastern or Arabic uh, uh, men raised in Britain, recruited through ISIS propaganda to serve their cause. You think men like that. You think you think kids who are who were recruited by ISIS. That's who does the bombings now. That's who does the violence in in London and in Europe is people who have been, you know, who have been teased in by ISIS. You don't think the IRA in this day and age, like if this took place in the 90s, that might make sense because the IRA was stopped by then and you could have people who are still within the chain of command looking to continue it and, the, and have people fighting them against that. Fight, you know, pushing back against and saying, no, we need to do things diplomatically. We're about 20 to 30 years away from the IRA being a headline figure in, in, uh, in people's minds, you know? To being the go-to for British terrorism. British terrorism has been dominated mostly by people recruited by ISIS and people who've been recruited by that mentality, the idea, if not ISIS specifically, then by the idea of being a martyr for this cause, uh, you know, even though you had no real connection to it, other than, you know, some of them may have been by 
birth, you know, they, their parents might have been from the Middle East somewhere or from an Arabic nation, or and for a lot of some of them from North Africa even. And the idea being that they feel so disrespected by their home country, by you know, I mean, it's the idea of you know, it's it's why some people like you look into the reason why these why people would seek out a group like ISIS a lot of times is to escape their own personal hell not realizing that what they're escaping to is not paradise it's a it's another level of hell but they see themselves in their own hell provided by you know the system around them and they want to change the system and the only way they see it is radical change violence and bloodshed but this movie isn't about that this movie could this movie could look into you know this movie isn't about why people resort to terrorism this is a taken movie that somehow got co-opted by the ira of all things with pierce brosnan as the head of the so-called ira which somehow has board meetings did, did the IRA incorporate and become a, a the IRA the Irish Republican Army Limited over there? I don't. I, I maybe somebody who so if you were a listener and you are familiar with the IRA and you live in the UK or you live in Ireland and you're more familiar with what's going on over there. As far as I know, nothing like that's going on. Like former IRA members are, have become part of Irish po- political parties. But as far as I can tell, there isn't an active IRA leadership out there. Like, there may be, but, like, I don't think... Like, do they have board meetings? Like, do they have things where they discuss, like, well, here, well, boys, here's here's what we're going to... Like, it's... I'm baffled by this idea of a board meeting of former IRA leaders. And not to mention the idea of they long for the glory days of the troubles? Like I said, I don't think anybody on the on, on the entire island, on the entire Ireland, <laughs> hey, that's fun to say. You want to refer to the, uh, the, the Green Isle, as it were, and you keep getting stuck on the whole name. Because, anyway, that's not important. Yeah, I don't think anybody on that whole island... Once the return of the Troubles, they would much, like, you could disagree on whether Ireland should be united as one country and if the Northern Ireland, and if the North, you know, the merits of having, you know, of being a member of the United, of, of the United Kingdom and whatnot, but the only time the IRA was even brought up in my, in my memory recently was after the Brexit vote because the Northern Irish were worried about what you know their eu because they wanted to be a member of the eu still and the brexit vote meant that they would have to leave the eu so they were reconsidering the idea of a unified ireland and at the same time they were very trepidatious of that because they didn't like the idea of the troubles returning it's still a very hot topic over there it's a hot as in not hot not hot as in popular but hot as in touchy don't touch this plate it's hot don't touch this topic it is too hot. And the idea being that there would be members of the IRA willing for that to return. And pushing for the return 
of the Troubles, essentially, and to resort back to their old methods when their old methods did not work and it was only diplomacy that brought them peace. Then that, 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 that doesn't, like, from what I know of Irish politics, that does not, that dog don't hunt, if you catch my drift. That, that's, don't make no sense. Like, it shouldn't, like, you're, like, the, uh, so I'm getting, I'm getting all bogged down in the, the meta of the movie when they should be talking about the movie itself. But the problem is the movie itself is kind of boring. Like, even as an R-rated movie, it's cut like a PG-13 movie. Like, all of the cool stuff Jackie Chan could be doing, it feels like it's, well, I don't see why this has to be an R-rated movie. It could just as easily be PG-13 the way it's cut and the way it's shot. Like, nothing about this is overly violent. It's not, like, I, like, I think Happy Death Day had more real graphic violence. This one wasn't all that bloody. I mean, there were, like, the only thing I can think is there were, there were, uh, there's, like, one scene of torture, and, and, like, there's a couple of criminal, like, crime elements. But at the same time, like, you could see that kind of stuff on television. Why is this R-rated? Like, here, hold on. Let me pull this up. Why is this R-rated? Rated R. Hold on. IMDb's got to load. Here we go. Okay. Violence, language, and some sexual material. This could just as easily have been a PG movie back in the 70s. Nothing about this screams R rating. This could easily pass for a PG-13 movie. Like, none of the... Like, there's no nudity. There's references to sex, but... There's no... Nobody's actually having... Like, there's... It's no more than kissing. It's no more than kissing and hot making out. And some women in their underwear, which is, you know, problematic in itself, but... Why not? But you could, you could discuss that on your own. But yeah, just the idea being that the, that the only women in this movie are in service to the men of the movie. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah this wasn't exactly the best you know, Pulitzer Prize winning material as, in and of itself. Is Pulitzer news? I think Pulitzer is news. But yeah, but you know, it's not like high class literature. This is, this is I, I'm guessing, a camp novel, except they played with all the solemnity of grandma's funeral. And I forget where I heard that from. I think that's a... Uh, oh, it's Todd in the Shadows. He made that. He made that reference. Yeah, it's it, this is played so serious and straight that it, it it can't have the fun of the trashiness of the premise, and it can't and it never goes far. Like Taken went so much further than this. So the idea that you would make a Taken style movie, but go nowhere near as far as Taken went to do what it does, doesn't. Doesn't bode well for you, does it? It's like the idea of, well, we have all of the ingredients of Coke except one. Let's just make it anyway. Oh, we're missing a couple of this herbs and spices to KFC chicken. Let's just sell it anyway. No, you need all of the elements there if you want that style of movie. And, and for some reason, this has like three separate Chinese-based production companies. 
I I don't know if uh, how many of them are tied to Jackie Chan. I don't know if they this was an attempt to have a co-Western Chinese action release. May, once again, maybe there's a lost in translation thing where some, where the where the Mandarin version of the movie is way better. But what we get what we got here is it's not interesting enough as a political thriller to warrant its own existence. And the fact that it was sold to us as a Taken movie, but it's too bogged down in IRA politics to have the fun and the, not even the fun, but like the action, the the, 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 the energy of, a, of Taken or of a Taken style movie. Like you could have this as a John Wick movie, but it doesn't go enough for the action. It doesn't go enough for the kills. It's, it, there's no reason for this to be R-rated. Why is this R-rated? I I don't understand how this, of all things, could be R-rated. This is could easily be passed as a PG-13 movie. I, I left this movie, and at no point did I think this deserved an R-rating. Nothing about this warranted an R-rating. So I don't get why it has one. Academy, the uh, MPAA is... Well, of course, everybody knows they're full of crap. They honestly don't need to exist, in, in all fairness, but they're there because legal issues and parents worrying about their precious children. I feel like it, I feel like the MPAA, I mean, I have nothing, you know, I, like as much as I'm a lefty when it comes to like certain other things, not to get too personal or political on it, but yeah, I, I understand. I, I believe in the idea of regulation, but at the same time, I believe in quality regulation. I believe in the idea that regulation should be lean and clean cut and just enough there to protect people. Like the idea of a speed bump, you know, the old system worked. G P G R that system worked, you know, and those were the nice smooth road bumps you know, uh, that you passed over in order to get it to the movie. So, G, all animated movies and kids' movies are G. There sh Honestly, in this day and age, there should not be a kids' movie that's animated that is above a G. If you were giving kids' movies a PG rating, what is wrong with The PG rating has become so watered down and uninteresting that it doesn't warrant its own existence. Seriously, PG-13 should be the PG. They used to be PG used to be the PG thirteen movies of the yesteryear, and of course, uh, you know, cracked this covered this as well. Uh, the idea being that it was Indiana Jones and trying to sell Lego. That was not just Indiana Jones, but uh, no, no, that was something else. I'm thinking of the Batman thing, because PG thirteen was replaced by Batman. I think as Batman Returns couldn't push toy sales, so they got rid of Tim Burton. That was the other thing. No, but Indiana Jones was trying to sell action figures, and the movie was too dark for parents, so the kids would so the kids wouldn't see it, and they wouldn't be buying the toys. That's why there's a PG-13 rating, because toys, toy sales gave us a PG-13. I hate this industry so much. It's so so stupid and backwards. This, feel, this felt like a very unorganized review of this movie. But at the same time, there isn't really that much. I mean, once again, they call this The Foreigner 
based on the book The Chinaman. Yet, so Chinaman isn't good enough to be the title, but it's okay. Like, that's too taboo for it to be the title. But it's okay to be dropped by literally every character in the movie about Jackie Chan. Who is from Vietnam. His character is from Vietnam, and they keep calling him the Chinaman. Why you, Why is he change the title of the movie if you're just still going to keep calling him the Chinaman throughout the whole thing? Of course, uh, somebody else pointed out, the Double Toasted crew also pointed out that every Irish person is seen drinking in this movie, which is... So, stereotypes abound. Irish are always drinking, and all Asian people are might as well be from China. They're all Chinamen. Ah, uh, movie's so stupid. Thankfully, it'll probably be completely forgotten by the end of the year. I honestly doubt anybody will be remembering this movie. And for good reason. It's garbage. Neither of them have been telling us the truth. He attacked me! I'd advise him to accept the deal. You lied in a sworn statement. Why would you do that? Why'd I lie? Because the truth gets me killed. You can't deny me now. If you want freedom, you're gonna have to fight for it. The only way to get through a bigot's door was to break it down. Woo! As timely as today's headlines, as it were. Well, the last couple of years' headlines, as it were. Not technically today's headlines. That's about something else entirely. No, we're talking about... You know, the system, the man, and the treatment of people of color under that system. And while Detroit took a more psychological thriller, sort of torture porn angle, like a horror movie almost, which I can respect it, but at the same time, I feel, once again, I still feel like that's not, we should be bolstering. Things like this, I feel, are more in line with the kind of movies we should be talking about, that acknowledges the horrors that are given to, that are, you know, that people of color face, but that ultimately show that they are able to overcome. And as much as, I mean, you could argue both angles. You could argue that you shouldn't be seeing black people just completely downtrodden the entire time. The idea of the, the slave drama, the same way the Holocaust is always shown to show how terrible the Jews had it. Uh, the Jewish people, not the Jews. The, the Jews is a pejorative. Uh, but, you know, the, the idea of, the idea being that you know, Holocaust movies are always showing the downtroddenness that the Jewish people faced. Same with slavery and, and you know, African-Americans, black people, the black community. And, yeah, I, I didn't like Detroit because it felt like, yeah, it did. It was torture porn. Whereas I feel like, whereas I feel like that it was almost exploitative in that sense. And it. Where, and you could, but at the same time, you could argue it both ways. Do you want the schmaltzy sort of we shall overcome angle in movies? Or do, would you rather see something more realistic, more acknowledging the harsh realities of the situation? So, I mean, there, once again, this isn't a, this isn't a black and white issue, so to speak. It's a black and white issue, but it's, it's a very gray, everything about it is gray, and your interpretations on it may vary based on your own experiences. Uh, from what I, I base mine more on what I'm hearing around me from members of the black community who are very involved with film. You know, I've, I have a lot of friends who do, they do just generic review, more comedic reviews, like the guys over at, uh, 
Black Men Can't Jump in Hollywood to more serious and uh, very thought-provoking reviews like over at Fishnet Cinema. But I like to... I like to more I like to sit back and you know listen to what other people have to say about the subject because it's not my subject to talk about ultimately. Like I'm talking about it here because it needs to be addressed, but this is not something I would talk extemporaneously on. I would let somebody much more qualified talk about it ultimately, you know, if we're talking about it in the public space if there are more people out there. I would much rather you know de defer to a much more qualified person to speak on the subject. But just from what I from what I hear of them and what and from what their you know from what their perspective says to me I would I'm in agreement with them that the idea being that and Corey Coleman over at Double Toasted has said this too the idea being that you know why 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 brothers and sisters always got to be downtrodden why we always got to be shown being beaten mistreated and. Yeah, as much as you want to acknowledge that that stuff happened you almost you do want to see more like it makes you. It makes me you appreciate black exploitation a little bit more because you are, you still see that mistreatment, but at the same time you get to see that power that comes from having you know that it's having that confidence within yourself and within your race. The, you know that's why such black exploitation works so well because it's an empowerment the themology to a people who have had to sit through and deal with that in their real life and being depicted on film. So that's why I'm more interested in things like uh, Roman J, I think it's Roman J Israel Esquire, which is from the guy who did Nightcrawler with uh, Denzel Washington. That looks like a really interesting movie. Uh, that and Black Panther and things like things that are like things that are more, you know, th that and get. That's why I also like Get Out more because here you have a black writer director tackling these subjects in a way to. Hyper hyperbolize them, but also acknowledge, but show you that this comes from a real place, and this is the kind of and, you know these are the horrors black people face you know hyperbolically depicted uh, in their daily lives. And Detroit felt very much like at at most points like a Saw movie for the most part. Here uh, we're talking about an early Thurgood Marshall case, uh, the case of well, shoot, who was this? Uh, something spell. Let me pull up the actual names here, but yeah, this is very early. This is a uh, the go-to uh, you know black figure in biopics. Chadwick Boseman. He's played Jackie Robinson. He's played James Brown. Now he's playing Thurgood Marshall. He's playing Black Panther. All the great black figures in. History and pop culture, apparently. But no, Chadwick Boseman's a great actor. I, I, you know, he's... I'm not sure if he's the ideal casting for uh, Thurgood Marshall, but he does a great job with it, nonetheless. And uh, you also got Josh Gad here as the guy who helped him out in this case. And this is the case of Joseph Spell, who was a chauffeur in this in this small town in, in Connecticut. I think it was Hartford? What is it? We're in a... Doesn't say in IMDb, but yeah, the idea being that this is a a, a small, like very well-to-do town in Connecticut, and uh, Sam Friedman, played by Josh Gad, is is a legal. Like, not, well, they're all legal. They're all lawyers, but he's more of a tax attorney. He's more of a loophole kind of guy. Like he, his first shot in the movie is him getting a bus company out of having to pay a woman uh, uh, damages in a case. He's a civil lawyer. 
And Chadwick Boseman is a criminal attorney. He is he tackles ra people racial discrimination by the law, and he is he is working just he is a traveling lawyer going town to town saving black men who have been mistreated by the law. And that could make that I could see that as an amazing series. Like every season is Thurgood Marshall going off saving another black man. <laughs> or maybe a, a black woman who I can't I can't speak to how many people he defend who you know his clientele you know male versus female but you know the idea of a traveling third good marshal early days going out and like if this was spun off into a TV series for like AMC or Netflix or something I'm all I'd be all for that I love the idea of third good marshal traveling you know from city to city for the NAACP to help defend. Uh, black folk. Maybe it's, maybe you don't, don't. Maybe just episode of the week. This ep, this week, uh, Thurgood Marshall's in Mississippi, and then he's automatic. Then all, next thing you know, he's called over, called off to Missouri, or called off to wherever you know, wherever the NAACP needs him. And you cover all of that, and eventually you end with him being on the Supreme Court. Like that's the final episode is him being sworn in to the Supreme Court. That's a great series. Somebody should show run that. Somebody show run that. Somebody take this and spin this off. Who who's got, who who produced this? Who's the produ production crew on it? Nobody I recognize. So uh, who are the distributors? Who are the comp who's the company people? Who do I contact? Open Road and Universal. So somebody get on the hold on Universal. Maybe make this an NBC pilot. The the marsh Marshall the trap the trap Thurgood Marshall traveling town to town saving black people for, who have been mistreated by the law i love it i want it somebody make this anyway uh so yeah he ends up in connecticut and uh sam friedman is supposed to just submit him to the court as uh joseph spell's legal counsel and the judge here is a is played by jimmy cromwell our good boy james cromwell uh, and he is he is having none of it he does not like the idea of some big time attorney coming in to defend this black this the, you know this this black man wanted you know wanted for rape and attempted murder and he's on good terms with the with the with the with the prosecution and the DA and he he is not having any of what Thurgood Marshall has won so Thurgood Marshall is not even told to speak in this man's courtroom and uh it's up to Sam Friedman to help it be uh Thurgood Marshall's Tell Thurgood Marshall give his give his defense without Thurgood Marshall even saying a thing, and uh, it's this unlikely friendship built out of these two disparate men. Uh, uh, Sam Friedman, who initially didn't want anything to do with this, did not want to rustle any ruffle any feathers. He didn't want to rock any boats, and uh, and it, it, he starts to real starts to realize just how much how important this is because once again he. Because of him helping Thurgood Marshall, Friedman begins to see the underpinnings of anti-Semitism in the town as well. So he becomes he he begins to rec you know he begins to recognize that the two of them are in the same boat ultimately, despite the fact that Friedman did not want to you know wanted to be wanted to try because that's a, that's the big thing with uh, historically with Jewish and Black communities is Jewish people. Were able to try escape, you know, unless they were overtly displaying aspects of their of their faith and of their culture, they could ski, they could blend in 
with the Gentiles. They could blend in with the whites. Black people were always wearing their coat. They 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 all you know they they cannot simply blend into white society. So you know while Jew, you know while historically Jewish uh, communities would much you know they they de they were just as racist in thought and in treatment of the black communities. The black communities began to develop a sort of you know equal distrust and hate for the Jewish community because despite the fact that they received the same treatment from the same enemy, they would, you know, for some reason, there's that weird dichotomy of, like, wanting to just be a part of it, but the black community can't easily blend in like the Jewish community can. But even then, like, the Jewish community has to kind of keep their aspect of their of their faith hidden. And even then, like, they, this movie even covers the fact that while this case is going on, Hitler is rounding up people in Poland and in, in Germany and across Europe to go into his camps. So Friedman has to acknowledge the fact that he and Marshall are in the same boat, ultimately. And, and it becomes a case... Ultimately, this is a case not unlike in To Kill a Mockingbird. The idea being that this black servant care figure, who was a chauffeur, not a um, not a farmhand, I think, which, uh, that uh, the character was in To Kill a Mockingbird, but the chauffeur um, was, was caught in the heat of passion with this well-to-do white woman, played by Kate Hudson, and probably one of her best roles. What's she been doing recently? I forget what she's been up to. She hasn't been doing the same old... Uh, trashy romance stuff like Bride Wars or How to Lose a Guy. Uh, well, she's going to be playing Jenny Pryor, Richard Pryor's wife. That's neat. Uh, she was on Jeepwater Horizon Mother's Day. A voice in Kung Fu Panda 3. Rock the Casbah. Oh, boy. And uh, she was on episodes of Glee. So she hasn't been exactly been in the best of stuff. Here she, she's a, you know, they're, they, you know she gets to play a... You know, she's in a period piece and she gets to play the same sort of figure, at, you know, this this tragic figure of a woman who gets caught in a relationship with a, with a black man. And then, you know, in her fear, in her, in, in the fear for her own life and what would happen if she opened, if that was open, she accuses the man of rape and attempted murder. And people just automatically assume the black guy did it. <laughs> he must have. He's a savage. I mean, look at him. Just look. And this is uh, Sterling K. Brown. Uh, who was who was an Emmy Award winner for uh, the uh, People versus O.J. Simpson, where he played the prosecutor Christopher Darden, and he was on he's on a This Is Us, which I haven't seen. I have no idea if that's any good. Apparently, people like it. No idea if it's too. It may be too schmaltzy for me. The trailers made it seem that way, but either way, this is a great actor. And he does you know he does play the at the same as much as he has these sort of speech of a lot you know that uh, 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 the sort of eyes nose you know that, that, that i don't want to go too far but but he has that sort of speaking style but uh, at the same time the way he portrays spell is very well rounded and very very compelling like he's not a like this could easily have just been a one note you know one note character written this way but but spell is very you see a lot of the the pathos of spell in this movie you see why he lied in a sworn statement you he you you begin to see him, you know especially in the last half of the movie you see why he does the things that he does and he's a very compelling character
Yeah, whereas you could easily have made him very one note in this movie. Uh, the, uh, there's also a weird, uh, weird bit where uh, Langston Hughes and Zora Hurston show up, show up, two very prominent figures in Black history. They're just kind of there. <laughs> they just show up. Uh, apparently, Thurgood Marshall's on good terms with Langston Hughes, and they just have they're just at a bar drinking after uh after uh Thurgood Marshall's wife admits that they finally got pregnant. So after after Buster Marshall says that they that the, you know that they're about to have a baby, they go to a bar and she's drinking a martini. There was the it was the it was the thirties. So I mean it's not like it was the it must have been the forties because alcohol was being served readily. So yeah, people were not the brightest back then. I mean, there's a great Mad TV sketch about the you know how this woman this mother from the fifties. Like smoked while her well, smoked while she was pregnant, left babies on the dashboard of the car, and just like, uh, yeah, it's 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 a it's a nice joke at the idea of just how lackadaisical parents used to be with things like smoking and drinking and pregnancy. <laughs> Although it's, I don't know which is worse, the lackadaisical nature of everything or the over over almost predatory nature of how how uh, some pregnancy stuff goes now where companies know moms aren't exactly sure what all to know and what you know what all will affect the baby so companies will take advantage of that now it's crazy how we've how that's diverted from that from before we you know the two ends of the spectrum would need to be offset we need to find a nice balance but it's anyway that's that's neither here nor there the point is this movie is solid it um i'm gonna get into a much more, you know, my, my, my issues with adapting from true life. But for the most part, this stays, like, this is written by a screenwriter, Jacob Koskoff, who wrote on the uh, Macbeth uh, movie with Michael Fassbender, uh, with Todd Luiso. Like, don't know. Apparently he wrote uh, High Fidelity and Jerry Maguire. Uh, so Koskoff, Koskoff wrote this with his dad. His dad. His dad, Michael Koskoff, and and sadly uncredited is their sister who helped out a bit. But the this Koskoff family, Kos, Michael Koskoff, for those who aren't aware, was a Connecticut-based lawyer who was a civil rights lawyer who was a white guy. I'm assuming white guy. I, I, I don't know. I'm assuming with a name like Koskoff, he is, you know, a white guy. And uh, he, in, yeah, he and his kids are. But uh, Michael Koskoff, I believe, from what I've read in the interview, in interviews, he was the one who was a longtime civil rights lawyer. He even represented members of the Black Panther Party back in the day. But he, so he was the one who wanted to tell the story of these, this very early story of Thurgood Marshall. You know, as Marshall had a long storied career after this. But it's nice to see the beginnings, the the origins of a man like Marshall, you know, like Thurgood Marshall. The idea that he was he was this traveling lawyer for the NAACP before he argued Brown versus Board of Education, which isn't would make which would make for a nice season finale for that show I was promoting. I'm telling you, somebody over at Universal, start pitching this show. It needs to happen. At any rate, uh, Michael Koskov was a was a you know civil rights lawyer in in uh, based out of based out of Connecticut for the longest time, and he's the one who had this who knew this story, you know, as a lawyer and uh, being based out of that area that he wanted to see it told, and 
Thankfully for him, he has two screenwriting kids. Both his son, Jacob, who was credited, and his daughter, Sarah, who apparently didn't participate enough to be credited. But both of the, all three of them made this a family affair and came up with this story of retelling the this very early case in Thurgood Marshall's career as a lawyer. This, so this, the old superhero origin story as of sorts. And I enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thoroughly goodly enjoyed it. That's terrible. Don't that cut all this out. This is terrible. No, I, I genuinely had enjoyed this. Like, there were little things. I will acknowledge it's not perfect. The weird thing is Sam Friedman looks like a young Dustin Hoffman. But he's played by Josh Gad. You, normally, people in the Hollywood version look better. On screen. Here's the case where the guy in real life looked immensely better than the actor playing him. It's crazy. Real crazy. But, at the, you know, at the same time, Gadot does a solid performance. I mean, that's the other thing is they imbue some humor as a form of levity as a way to kind of, you know, ease the tension of, of the seriousness of the case. And it kind of has nice back. But at the same time, a lot of the humor was there. Like, there's a scene in the movie that is... Word, that is pretty much word for word what happened in the case where the defend the um the the uh, victim Kate Hudson's character is on the stand talking about how she was gagged and uh, Sam Friedman has Thurgood Marshall take the copy uh, evidence form of the gag and tie it to the to the victim specifications. To, uh, to prove to the court that she could have easily screamed if, if, she was, if, if this was a gag, that she wasn't inhibited by the gag from screaming. It's a whack. It's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing scene the way it plays out. And it, it all happened. All of that was there. Uh, Koskov does imbue a couple of things like in his time as a lawyer, there are like during the jury selection, there's a point where a man openly admits to hating both Jews and uh, and black people, and and the judge allows him to go on the jury anyway because of this BS. You can overcome your natural biases when judging this case, can't you? Sure, sure. Apparently, this guy, this white bigot, can't. This white bigot can overcome his biases, but a black man asked the same question. Obviously, can't. God. The system is busted. It hasn't changed all that much either, unfortunately, which is why this is so prevalent nowadays. The idea being that the, you see some of the stuff going on, and I'm sure, you know, you, know, you could go to towns across. I'm sure here, where I am in Ohio, you have crap like this going on in court all the time and with police. Like, it's, it's, it's crazy that we still have to deal with this, that we didn't deal with it the first time. That it's still happening, and we didn't do anything about it. And we're still not doing anything about it. So yeah, Marshall. A great superhero origin story. And honestly, I kind of want either a continuing movie series where we see Thurgood Marshall next argue Brown versus Board of Education and then finally end up on the Supreme Court. But this is a nice start. I like it. I want, it, I want more. I want to see more. And uh, uh, we're going to take a quick break and come back and talk about a, a uh, less than flowery uh, review for a different biopic. But we'll get into that after the break. 
you out there. Do you know what horror is? You like horror films. You like gore. You want to hear four badass women discuss and dissect modern and classic horror films. Join us at Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, a good ghoul's guide to horror. Oh! On the gummy cat Don't read the Latin. Do you know that in the world of the insane you will find a kind of truth more terrifying? has a secret identity. Why is that? She has to hide her true self from men's world. What would happen if Wonder Woman's secret identity was revealed? Everything would be lost. I wonder if you were the one with a secret identity. This is the kind of biopic I don't like. This is the kind of biopic that drives me up a wall. And I'd like to thank the actual granddaughter of Professor Marston, Professor William Marston, Christy Marston, for pointing this out to me on Twitter. Uh, let me pull up her actual Twitter handle. You can f check her out as well. She was very active uh, during the uh, initial Wonder Woman list. She loved that movie. And yeah, it's a very accurate representation of the character. More accurate than what we got with Superman, uh, but let me pull her up so you can follow her as well. I, I, you know, definitely go, you know, support her in this and having to fight and having to at at, at one end, you know, praise a uh, accurate representation of her grandfather's character, and on the other hand, denounce this trashy, essentially lifetime movie of the week version retelling of their of of her grand of the origin of wonder woman uh, uh christy marston goes by at christy marston on uh on a twitter so that's at c h r i s t i e m a r s t o n on twitter and yeah she she was the one who uh reached out to me after uh at, this was before the movie came out this was um during one of my trailer talks on Twitter, I commented on something. Let me pull up the actual tweet in question. All right, I got the tweet in question here. Um, I commented, this was during the Flatliners uh, trailer talk segment. And uh, she got to me uh, a couple days later on October 4th. Uh, the, uh, I, I, I posted as a, as a comment on the trailer, in one year we get movies for Wonder Woman and the creator of Wonder Woman, just as a flat out... That's like an amazement. It's like, hey, in one year we get the, we get the Wonder Woman movie and the and the biopic about the creation of Wonder Woman. And Christy replied back, the movie alleged to be about the creator is not. It is simply a movie using the family name. No connection, no reality at all. And recently, uh, Christy posted with the hashtag Lasso the Truth. The film is not a true story. It is based on someone's imagination, not in any way related to my family. We completely reject any claims made in the film and in no way support this work of fiction. And in brackets, and by the way, the true story is much more interesting. 
And as soon as uh, Christy what uh, uh, you know revealed this to me that the movie was a fictionalization that it wasn't the truth. I went I went I started doing my own research, started to look into what you know what you know what exactly was going on and apparently there was only one move, one article I've seen discuss, discussing this movie that even acknowledges the fact that this isn't the true story of one of the of Professor Mar of Dr. Marston and the creation of Wonder Woman. Uh, that was in Psychology Today because uh, being the creator of the lie detector and a and a psychologist by trade, the psychology um, my the magazine dedicated to psychology would of course want to talk about one of their you know, uh, luminaries, one of their, you know, one of their well-known, uh, practitioners. And is this one in psychology today, look, the, the article title is the true story in quotes of Wonder Woman's Marston Ménage à Trois. And, um, it's tr Dr. Tra Dr. Travis Langley, uh, writing the article for Psychology Today. Look up that article. Fantastic article. It's where I got most of my information because he actually cites his sources. Like, you know, like a good, you know, person dealing with the facts should. And he has this great quote from a Q&A at New York Comic Con. I, I think this was him. Travis Langley. Oh, hey, he, he himself asked the question. Um, from the Q&A, in the article, my name is Travis Langley. I'm a friend of the Marston family. Oh, even better. So this is actually very hard. Now, the tra now that trailer's set based on, but you have a lot of promotional material out there that says the true story. So we're wondering where you got information such as, no one we've ever spoken with who knew them knew the relationship between Betty and Dotsie, Elizabeth Marston and uh, Olive Byrne, the women in question, to be sexual. If it was, that's fine. But where did you find proof that no one who knew them, to our knowledge, had? Writer-director, uh, what's her name? Rebecca, no, not Rebecca Hall's the actress. Who's the, Angela Robinson. Writer-director Angela Robinson, in reply. That's a difficult question because I did talk to a source who said that that was her interpretation, who had studied them. Langley. Studied? Robinson. But it was, it's very, it's tricky because I don't know if, pause, I choose to tell, I chose to tell the story as my interpretation of the story. And I think that there's a lot of facts that are indisputable about the Marstons. And I feel that there's a lot that's open to interpretation. So, as a filmmaker, this was my interpretation of their story. See, that's that's the thing. It's nice to try and talk, deal with stories in a fictional sense that they're all essentially fiction in your mind. Uh, this is the here's the kind of difference when you're dealing with fictional characters. You're not dealing. You may be dealing with people's fan fandoms and people's you know love of a certain character and the way they're represented. But um, there's a thing, there's a nice quote uh, that the uh, nostalgia critic used to play from the Warriors of Virtue that is uh, very apropos to this subject. Uh, that, that quote is, um, it was a life. Professor Marston, Dr. William Marston, lived an actual life. 
His life is not up, our lives are not up to interpretation. These are things that are happening. We have we live actual existences. We have actual events in our lives that are carved in stone. We're not up to interpretation. Like imagine in this day and age having Peter Dinklage play Napoleon cuz you still under the under the misinterpretation that Napoleon was somehow a, a little person. A person of diminutive stature, despite the fact that he was five foot freaking eight. Where's it six? His average height. He was the height of an actual man. Well, the height of his actual height was not that different from the average height of the other men of his time period. So the idea that Napoleon is still thought of as a little person, as a diminutive person, is all fictionalized. It's all made up garbage. Like. The, 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 once again, we just came off of Columbus Day. Columbus Day. Columbus, the one that we were taught in school in America, was made up by Washington Irving, no less. Look up the uh, Adam Ruins Everything about it. Uh, it was the animated one as I was sent up to the Magic School Bus. And uh, he covered Columbus. And the fact that the Columbus story we know, the one of him sailing the ocean blue, et cetera, et cetera, was all and him discovering that the world was round and, and, and all that. Washington Irving, the creator of Ichabod Crane and the writer of, uh, the, of Ichabod Crane and Sleepy Hollow, or whatever the actual, uh, actual name of the story was, he made that up. He completely made up that version of Columbus to sell books. These are people's lives that we're talking about. They aren't up for interpretation. They are up to be filled with and say, well, what if this? You can't do that. Well, that's the thing. It's not that they're not up for interpretation because we can have figures like Abraham Lincoln being portrayed as a vampire hunter. We can have things like Teddy Roosevelt as like what, a cyborg. Or, you know, or, you know, things like that. If FD, we can have FDR as a head in the jar. But the reason, but we don't go around saying those interpretations are fact. When you're dealing with people's lives, you don't go around saying that the, your version is the true story. You can't call it the true story if you're making it up. The same th problem that a beautiful mind has. You're not telling the true story. You're making up a story. You can't call it... It's the same thing with The Social Network. Aaron Sorkin is about to direct his own biopic despite the fact that he openly admitted in the interviews dealing with Steve Jobs that he hates adhering to the truth. And yet someone gave him another biopic. I really hate Aaron Sorkin if that wasn't uh, very clear by now. Aaron Sorkin is not a screenwriter that I hold in very high regard. I um, kind of, in my, in my distaste for him, compared him to the likes of Woody Allen, Harvey Weinstein, Donald Trump as one of those kind of very, one of those guys that probably would have, uh, you know, stories of sexual abuse and mistreatment under him. David O. Russell is on record as uh, having been that kind of director. 
There's no, I don't know of any record of Aaron Sorkin being the same way. All I know is the way I've heard, the way, the, the fact that he goes on to internet forums to call people out for not liking his work. I would not be surprised if he was also abusive to people in real life. I, I'm just saying I'm not surprised. That's all. And that's my, that once again, that's my interpretation. That's not his actual life. If you want his actual life, there are people who can give you the events of his actual life that aren't up for interpretation. I'm not claiming, I'm not the one saying that the true story of Aaron Sorkin is that he, that he, that he is along the same lines of, as a guy like Harvey Weinstein. That's not for me to openly say because I don't know the facts. I'm more making an assumption, but I'm not claiming that that's the truth of, of, of Aaron Sorkin. You don't get to claim that you're telling the true story if you are in fact making things up. And that's the thing. Robinson claimed that they reached out to the Marston family. And Christy Marston, who reached out to me, to me, a lowly internet reviewer, Christy Marston, granddaughter of William Marston, inventor of the lie detector and creator of Wonder Woman, reached out to me to inform me of the truth behind this biopic. And I think what's even crazier is that, like she said in her tweet recently, the real story is even better. There is an actual story being told that we are not being told it. There is an actual story out there that needs to be told that has probably already been told in a documentary. So why are we telling that story? The real story is so... It's like the thing with um, The Revenant. Well, it's not as streamlined. His life was not as streamlined. The guy who inspired The Revenant had a, had a way crazier and more interesting life than the movie even tackled. Um, there was another guy recently, some other biopic. I forget which one it was. But, uh, you know, the idea being that the real life is even better and crazier and you're not even talking about it. Why? Why not? Do the thing. This is your Hollywood. Why not tell the cool stuff? At any rate, I haven't even tackled the actual movie itself because it pisses me off. The, the actual stuff that they're dealing... Because that's the other thing. This movie is getting all kinds of praise. And I can see... And the only thing I can see that it... See giving it praise for is the positive portrayal of BDSM and uh, polyamory. I will not denounce the movie for that. That being said, if you wanted to tell a story about polyamory and BDSM and deal with those subjects in a positive way on film, write your own damn story and don't talk about it like it's somebody else's life story. Make up your own story, you lazy bums. Like, imagine this. Imagine, let's take it even more recently. Let's say there's a movie out there. A filmmaker decides his interpretation of Barack Obama's story of him being a Kenyan-born Muslim. And that his entire presidency was a fraud. Imagine somebody made that movie and claimed it to be the true story of Barack Obama. Or, what's another one? What's another story that's 
but that's along those lines where there aren't facts to back it up, but it is speculation. Um, oh, perfect, perfect one. 9-11, the, uh, the uh, Charlie Sheen movie was supposed to be about this. Imagine you made a film that was your interpretation that the government you know, were the perpetrators of the 9-11 attacks and it was all orchestrated by George W. Bush and Dick Cheney in association with the Illuminati or whatever bull crap they always pull with that kind of conspiracy. Imagine telling actually going that far and claiming and claiming that that was the true story behind the 9-11 attacks. This is no different. We are dealing with speculation and hearsay. Not any, and nothing about this movie had anything to do with the actual Marston family. It was all a trashy, G, real Gino. Look up R-E-E-L Gino. G-E-N-O. He, uh, he, he does stuff with... Uh, I've, get, I've been getting into him lately through uh, Cinema Snob, through Brad Jones... Jones? Is his last name Jones? Brad? Brad some... Brad Cinema... Cinema Brad. Cinema Snob Brad. S Brad Snob. That guy. Him... The, the him guy. Um, yeah, Gino has been... Has done a couple of uh, Brad's reviews. Uh, midnight... Midnight uh, screening reviews. And so I started watching his stuff. I... I you know, it's... It's not exactly... Gino's kind of deadpan in his reviews, but I like what he has to say for the most part. It's short, succinct, to the point. Uh, he's been doing a Punisher and a Dungeons & Dragons series, uh, which I also recommend because, oh man, he really tackled what I, my issues with uh, the Dragonlance movie that they did a while back with Kiefer Sutherland and Lucy Lawless. They did an animated movie of one of my favorite books, which I got from my uncle, whose house I'm living in, oddly enough. Um, it was a, a, it was the fictional adaptation based in the Dragonlance universe created for Dungeons and Dragons, which I had no idea of until this year. Uh, Dragons of Autumn Twilight. They did that movie as an animated movie with Kiefer Sutherland and Lucy Lawless as the main stars. And the book is so amazing, and the movie just can't do it justice. Just cannot capture all the good things about that book. And Gino covers my, all of my issues pretty much with the book, with the adaptation of the book. I also recommend you check out that book. I need to read the rest of that series. I love the Dragonlance, Dragons of Autumn, Twilight book. I need to finish that saga. At any rate, I'm, I'm a, a Gino was the one who pointed out that this is kind of like a Skinamax movie, ultimately. Like, this does feel like, all, like as much as they are portraying it positively, it is still a campy, trashy, you know, sex-driven movie. Like, I highly doubt that the, Martians were such horn dogs that they were doing stuff in the middle of the day. You know, I, I highly doubt that it was, you know, like sex, 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 like they were living in a brothel. You know, like, oh, they're they're in a three-way relationship. That means they're having sex all of the time. What? That's kind of this movie for the most part, up until even especially once the bondage is introduced. That's the other thing, too. Like, all of the Wonder Woman imagery is said to be basically a part of Marston's kinks, which there is no evidence behind that. There is no evidence to back that up. The bondage was speculated. 
It is speculated that Marston added that because it was his kink. There is no evidence to back up that claim. Fact of the matter is, Wonder Woman is based on these two actual women who lived, one of whom lived to be over 100 and didn't die until recently. I think it was Olive who lived into... Oliver Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Elizabeth was the one who lived to be over 100 and died in like 20, 2015 or so. Some people aren't... Like, that's the thing. The idea that they were these sex-crazed horn dogs? That's how you wanted to pick them? Like this is some, court, some, some kind of softcore porno? That, that's what this movie attempts to do. Why is this softcore porn... Lifetime original movie of the week version getting such high praise from people. Because that's the thing. The truth, the, you know, the, the, the deviations from the truth aside, the only good thing this movie does is give a sex-positive portrayal of polyamory and BDSM. That's it. That is the only good thing this movie does. Everything else about it is bland and uninteresting and generic. Seriously. There's a, a running gag that uh, Doug, uh, Doug Walker and Rob Walker have in their uh, reviews lately uh, with the characters of the two chart guys played by Malcolm and Rob. Um, the chart guys will come in. Uh, they did this in It and they did this in Suicide Squad for this gig. And it's and it's a and it's a real criticism of the way screenplays are set up. The idea that these people who have no reason to give up and split up are, are, are go uh, go out of their way to split up just so they can triumphantly return together in the climax. They did it in Suicide Squad. They did it in they did it in it. It's a little bit more believable because the idea was the one kid got had his arm broken and his overprotective mom kind of kept him away from the rest of the group and the rest of the kids kind of got sick of each other. But it's still, you know, even the, the, the setup is still pretty forced. The idea, the idea being that at this point in the story, the, the people have to give up. There, there's no reason for that. That's, uh, I mean, aside from the fact that it's a trope, it exists. There's no reason for it to be there if it doesn't have to be there. You can't. You shouldn't have to force these these heroes, the heroes, to give up just so they can come back from from, from you know just because things got hard. Like that's the thing. Things can get hard, and you can still continue going. You shouldn't. You shouldn't be giving up mid story if it doesn't. If the, you know if it's not natural. If it doesn't make sense for them to give up. If there's not a reason for them to give up. And here, the movie goes out of its way to split Elizabeth and uh, William and Olive up. This is, it goes out of its way to have a Liz Elizabeth, who is the one who is mainly in love with Olive. This is that, that's the other thing. This is a very you know lesbian focused movie. The idea being that while William had the hots for Olive, it was Elizabeth that was truly in love with Olive for the most part. And it was Elizabeth who told Olive to go away. And at that, that same point in these movies, they split the characters up and it's not necessary. The only reason they do it is so that Olive can, be, can come back later when Marston is dying from cancer. I don't say it, but he does die from cancer in real life. So it's a forced 
return to the return to the house dying of cancer moment in the climax this movie is so stupid and bad and i hate it i genuinely don't like this movie and i think the fact that it was i think the main thing is that it does deviate from a much more interesting story to tell this Skinamax cr crap. Like, Skinamax has its own things. You can't go around saying a Skinamax movie is the true story unless that's what actually happened. So yeah, Professor Marston and the Wonder Women. It's a Skinamax movie masquerading as a biopic. Don't believe the hype. It's garbage. It's gonna win a bunch of awards too, I can feel it. The word around town was Jaws was a folly and that it was going to be a disaster. Dun, dun. Dun, 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 dun. The night Jaws opened, we were looking, going down all the lines, and said, this is it. There were people that hated him, people that blamed him for ruining the movies. All my films come from the part of myself that I really can't articulate. Schindler changed my entire approach to cinema. He was like someone whose skin had been torn off. He has a dynamic sense of real filmmaking. You think of that young kid one day sneaking his way into a studio and manifesting his own destiny. It's a pretty fantastic Hollywood story. And the last thing I really saw of note this week was the HBO documentary about Steven Spielberg. And I gotta admit, before I was a fan of Spielberg, now I, I, I'm in love with the guy. I, 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 aside from hearing that he is one of uh, one of these guys that's like Woody Allen, that's like Harvey Weinstein, that he is a a predator. Aside from gleaning that knowledge from people, uh, if people come out and say Spielberg is 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 of that same ilk, I'll immediately disown him because I I'm done with that sort of thing. Uh, but I I I adore his movies. I, I, I love the story of this guy's life, the idea being that he was. And the thing is, the movie does reveal his life, so much of his life, though especially those early movies, especially the way he writes and he films uh, um, dysfunctional families, that came from his life. There's a, there's a line from Close Cat of the Third Kind, which didn't, that didn't make sense to me initially when I first saw the movie, but knowing this fact makes all the more sense now. The scene where uh, Richard Dreyfuss' kid calls him a crybaby because he's breaking down crying. Spielberg did that to his own father. Spielberg was this kind of, you know, he believed he, what, he was of the mind that a man shouldn't cry. So to see the father in his life crying, he immediately thought, dis, you know, had this disowning of his father. And he, for the longest time, you know, hated his father, just couldn't, thought his father was the reason he and his mother split up. Had no idea the father did what he did, which is essentially to uh, take the brunt of the hate from the, from the kids and from, and from people by initiating the divorce. And uh, their divorce was actually because uh, Spielberg's mom fell in love with one of their longtime best friends. And... It was his mom that was the one who initiated the who initiated the affair and who fell out of love with the, his father, who was a workaholic, who was always away. And, the, and his father wasn't upset, didn't hold it against her, 
but knew that he, he was he had to be the one to take the brunt because he he it, because he did not because he knew that he couldn't let his wife be the one to take the blame for the marriage dissipating and it's and you, you actually talk to Spielberg's parents who are still alive if these uh, interviews were taken recently and they're back together oddly enough they split apart when Spielberg was young. And since their other partners have died, they've recently rekindled their marriage. <laughs> crazy thing that, uh, crazy thing about life. You know, it's just a weird point where they where they divert into the different paths with other lovers, and then they fall right back in love with each other. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's a, it's a, it, I love hearing the um the, the one thing I will say this does feel initially this started to feel like a lot of the supplementary material to Spielberg's movies cobbled together. It felt a lot like these disparate interviews. It does smooth out along the way. Um, I do feel like this could have been a multi-part series. You could easily do early... You could do um, Spielberg's life starting from childhood to his early days in filmmaking, working for television... The blockbusters in the seventies. There's you could do a whole movie about the film about the movie brats that he became. Him, Scorsese, Lucas, Coppola, uh, De Palma. All of these amazing auteurs and these filmmakers from the seventies were all part of. The, we're all buddies. We're all friends who showed these movies to each other. Spielberg shot on Scarface. The uh, the crane shot at the very end in the in the climactic battle. Between um, um, Tony Montana and the uh, the uh, whatever and whatever people are coming into his house, that was that was uh, Spielberg behind the camera for that shot for a couple of those shots. He was like a, he was almost like a second unit director on this movie. These, I would love a movie about the these these buddies these brat this brat pack of sorts uh, that made these movies in the seventies. That all were all a bunch of dorks. Who loved making movies and they made their own movies and they all made movies and they showed off to each other. It's like, hey, hey, want to check out my movie? Here's what I got. And it's, I would love to, there's even footage. There was even footage of them filming it, their lives at the time. Like he, Spielberg was shooting home movies of these guys hanging out. And I would love to see, and I'm surprised we haven't gotten that movie. Why not? It's, it's like dazed and confused for cinephiles. We are literally seeing the, the these auteurs, these amazing filmmakers, hanging out, being buddies. That would be amazing. Anyway, um, there's all, but yeah, like I said, there's a lot of material. That the, this covers the big stuff. It covers TV, childhood, Jaws, uh, Schindler's List, Color Purple, um, Jurassic Park. Uh, does cover Munich and War of the Worlds. Towards the end, and um, Munich being his, it's like Schindler's List was him accepting that he is Jewish. Like before that, he he like he tells a story of his of his um, Russian Jewish father uh, calling him by his Hebrew name Shmuel. Like his 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 Hebrew name is Shmuel, and um, he was growing up in the suburbs, and his his Russian grandfather is like Shmuel Shmuel. And his friends are like, are you? Is he talking to you? And Spielberg tries to pass it off as, I don't know who he's talking about. And the kids figure out that he's Jewish. And yeah, he's, he had, he's always 
kind of resented the fact that he was never part of the nuclear family, as it were, the, you know, the white upper class, uh, Anglo, you know, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant upper class, middle, you know, middle, uh, middle class, upper middle class family that, that was, that was the leave it to beaver crowd. That was everything, everybody that, you know, Americana was built around this idea and he did not fit into it. He did not fit into that ideal. And he resented that for the longest time. It's amazing hearing him talk about this. And it was Schindler's List. He he got that book in the 80s. I think the 80s. Yeah, he got it in the 80s because it was, took a while for him to finally work his way into filming it. And Schindler's List was him rediscovering his faith. That and um, marrying... Um, not Amy Irving. Uh, the, other one, the second one... Um, they don't really talk about his personal life that much. That's the other thing I feel like uh, is missing is they could easily talk about his, you know, hit, hit, you know, like what's really going, like the fact that he did, he started dating Amy Irving and then went on to date Kate Capshaw. And it was Kate Capshaw who got him back into Judaism. And it was, it was partly Kate Capshaw wanting to be like, I support your heritage and I support your history, I support your, your culture. I want to be a part of that, that, um, that Spielberg eventually reconnected with his, with his culture be, and accepted the fact that he's Jewish. And he, that's when he finally made Schindler's List to acknowledge his, his faith and his belief. He reconnected with his faith and that's the other thing. He was born in Cincinnati. He's a, he's a Cincinnati boy. So a bunch of that time he was in in a high he was a buckeye. Um but yeah, um it was Kate so yeah, it was Kate Capshaw who um uh, he who he uh re, re, who he really connected with and who brought him then Kate Capshaw is not featured in the movie. And I as far as I know they're still married unless she I don't think she passed away, like, but she's not featured in the movie. Um, yeah, still married to Kate Capshaw. He he did he divorced Amy Irving in nineteen eighty nine. But Kate Capshaw's not even interviewed once in the movie. And I kind of found that weird. Like you could easily, like once again, you could easily go deeper into this man's life story. You could go, you could talk about this man's life story. For hours, this goes on for two and a half hours or a little over two hours. You could do an entire Ken Burns length documentary about this man's life and still not cover everything because there is so much. To, it barely passes over 1941. That was more like, hey, I could make a bad movie. Uh, Leo DiCaprio's barely in it. Um, all these other actors that he worked with are all are are passing are just pa are just like really quick passes. They don't really go into Minority Report. They don't go into Catch Me If You Can or The Terminal. They mainly focus on... They don't really go into War Horse either or Tintin. Like, so much of his recent stuff... They don't talk about... They show footage from the BFG. They don't really talk about the BFG. They show footage from Bridge of Spies. They don't really talk about why he made Bridge of Spies. You could easily go into these movies... You could easily go in, go have, go all out on these movies... Oh, um, he's apparently working with Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep on uh, the Pentagon Papers, a movie about the Washington Post uncovering the Pentagon Papers. 
Um, which one? Was, what? Wait, what was that for? The Pentagon Papers. Oh, about uh, about um, Vietnam. That's what it was. So that'll be interesting. Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep, Alison Brie, Carrie Coon, David Cross, Bob Odenkirk. Okay, you have you, I, you, you had my. Uh, what's what's the Django and Chain line? Um, what's the Django and Chain line? Gentlemen, uh, you had my. Gentlemen, you had my curiosity. Now you have my attention. So I'm excited for the post. That that should be good coming out. Um, as long as the story... Who's writing it? Liz Hanna and Josh Singer. Who is it? Wh wh what are they known for? Liz Hanna wrote, rate, worked on the crew. She wrote something called Skin. And the post is going to be her first feature-length screenplay. While Josh Singer is known... F it was a producer on Spotlight. Wrote, the wrote on The Fifth Element in The West Wing. And wrote, wrote Spotlight. So this is a guy who deals a lot with le legal dramas and the law. And uh, has covered journalism in a film so so hey the guy from writer from spotlight and a newcomer are working with steven spielberg to write about the pentagon papers i'm in once again great stellar cast uh i trust spielberg as the director and the story sounds great you have to try really hard to screw this up so uh yeah at any rate i spielberg is a solid documentary but once again this man has has such an interesting life that it that you, you could go on for hours talking about the kind of stuff that he does and did. And, his, you know, he, you could go, like, I, I'm glad I know these more personal aspects of his life and how it refl it's reflected in his films. But, you know, who, but who cares? No big deal. I want more. That's how I feel after this movie. I'm like, well, that's it? That's all you're going to talk to me about? I want more? What about all this other stuff? You don't go into it. Shaw. we don't he adopted all these kids what about they, they don't really talk like what this, but this and uh oh 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 man so uh yeah spielberg it's a solid documentary it just leaves you wanting more i think that's enough for uh an episode that's about 90 minutes on five movies so uh let's get on to the trailer talk now, like I was saying, there were actually five movies slated to open wide this weekend, uh, this coming weekend, the 20th. We've got Geostorm, the long-belated solo project from Dean Devlin, co-writer of Independence Day and Godzilla 98. Only the Brave about the California wildfire fighters. Uh, same kind of different as me. Which I think it's some kind of... Oh, oh, there you go. It's Pure Flix. <laughs> Same kind of different as me. And the difference is that we both love Jesus. I don't know. It's Pure Flix. Uh, the Snowman and Tyler Perry's Boo 2, a Medea Halloween. Or Boo 2, a Medea Halloween. So 
Let's start things off with Geostorm. Extreme weather alert! Senate committee will now hear from Jacob Lawson, Climate ISS Chief Coordinator. May the record reflect that he was nearly one hour late. Yeah, sorry about that. I literally had to fly in from outer space. Wouldn't the senators know that about him? Natural disasters have become a thing of the past. Yeah, that's not how weather works. We can control our weather. Yeah, thanks to Cobra! Atmospheric satellites malfunctioned over Afghanistan. So your proposal is what? We shut down all satellites. I don't need to remind all of you how many people died from catastrophic climate conditions. Make sure there's no further incidents. Are you going back up to space? I'm coming back. I promise. Have a safe trip, sir. Just don't touch anything. Main engine started. I thought they shut down the shuttle program, so are they bringing back the just shuttle program? And I would have thought. I mean, good. God, this writing is garbage. My access has been blocked. So satellite has a bad comm. That happens. Not a satellite. All of them. This wasn't a malfunction. It was intentional. There's potential for catastrophic this reeks of steel. wanting to come out the same year as 2012. A geostorm. <laughs> geo we have to shut the system down. The only one who has the kill codes is the president. I need your help. You're soliciting a secret service agent. Seriously? We're kidnapping the president in a self-driving cat. The world. We'll be taken. You can't stop it. No one can. By story. Come on, baby. You realize you're committing treason? Oh yeah, I kidnapped the president. I've stolen state secrets. Yeah, anything I'm forgetting, honey? Honey. Oh god, that's such garbage dialogue. Oh, it's gonna be so bad. So, yeah, we've got that to look forward to. At least we can finally get it out of the way. I think we still have to wait for that other freaking stupid thank you for your service. I can't, I get so sick of that trailer. It's so schmaltzy and feel good. It's, it feels all, it just reeks of, like, self-righteousness, you know? Like, look at us telling the story of our, of our true heroes. And it's like, it, it, it reeks of that level of pretension about, about, without ever really tackling the actual issues of, you know, veterans and war and the military industrial complex. Yeah, everything about that movie reeks of borderline propaganda almost. At least in the trailers I've seen. So maybe the movie would be better. I can't I can't say for sure, but I will say the trailers look like garbage. Except for the song. That song is badass. Uh, next next one up. The first one with Miles Teller. Only the Brave. I work this blaze near a big town in Montana. In the blink of an eye, there's fire everywhere. 
Not gonna lie, uh, Josh Gro- uh, not Groban, uh, Josh Brolin looks like Dusty Cat, <laughs> the, uh, the brony reviewer and personality. I'm surprised they didn't get Dusty Cat to do this. Also, that CGI effect is garbage. You should feel bad about that. I heard you guys had some slots available. What are you doing here? I just had a daughter. Yeah. And yeah, Miles Teller looks like some looks like somebody trying to pretend to be Slim Shady. Some wannabe thug. No difference between Type Two crew and Hot Shots. Yes, sir. Hot Shots are on the front line, and they get to engage the fire directly. You guys are Type Two, so why don't you do what you do best? Stay in the back. And uh, mop up our shit. Wow, are we really? Do we really need like? You want to be a John Wayne thing? Uh, do we really need like the the the, the BS of, that firefighters give each other? Sooner or later, fire's gonna come knocking in our hometown. But until we're certified, my crew won't even be able to set foot on the line. Doing something that's never been done before takes time. It's not easy sharing a man with a fire. I want y'all to breathe in this beautiful vista, because once you're hot shots, you're never going to be able to look out into the wild. Wow, this feels very inappropriate to come out while California is literally on fire. This, oh man, yeah, I know what this is. No one could be prouder of his boys than I am of you guys. The Granite Mountain Hotshots. You know what this is? This is backdraft for good old boys. That's what this reeks of. This reeks of blue collar pandering you know how people were saying logan lucky was showing how hollywood doesn't get trump's america this feel this feels like pandering this feels like pandering to the good old boys and the and the blue collar red red-blooded americans out there this i don't know maybe they're into this sort of thing i'm not i'm not into the idea of making making some big deal out of I, I don't know i don't know what these guys lives are like i would much rather watch a documentary than have some overblown melodramatic bullcrap at least the documentary usually can have an unbiased you know sense of itself can have a, like he these are the facts sort of you know the sort of sort of walter cronkite issue now you know the rest of the story you're not going to get that from a movie. A movie is too full of itself. And yeah, this reeks of having that kind of mentality about it, at least in the marketing. That's what I get from the marketing. I can't say for sure until I see the movie itself. But woof, does this marketing feel... This and thank you for, for, thank you for your service feel like they had the same audience in mind. The Trump's America audience in mind. And... Wow, does that not appeal to me in the slightest. So, who knows? The movie may just be fine. Or maybe good, it may be bad. I can't say for sure. All I can say is these, this trailer does not sell me on it. All right, next up, The Snowman. 
Right off the bat, the cinematography sound feels like David Fincher. Same thing with like um, the girl on the train had the same kind of had the same kind of cinematography going for it. Very Fincher-esque kind of thriller. That's why I'm wondering if this is going to become a, a, a yearly thing. The idea that there's always going to be a thriller leading into the winter. I transferred from missing persons. Harry Hall. We studied your cases at the academy. They date back so is this in England? They have accent. Even J.K. Simmons has an accent. No matter who you are. Tell me. I think it's the falling snow that sets the killer off. Then who does he need the snowman for? Based on the terrifying bestseller by Joe Nesby. Little pieces. That's what a child does to establish order. And the director of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. We got the missing person's call. I was missing. Sylvia Otterson. I'm Sylvia Otterson. Why would someone report you missing? You know, someone on Twitter was saying how this is, this feels like... Oh, Martin Scorsese, producer. Interesting. Um, but they were saying that this felt like a 90s thriller along the lines of the... Um, uh, who's the guy my mom likes? Uh, Alex Cross. The, the Along Came a Spider. And uh, those movies with Morgan Freeman as Alex Cross. And I can see where they're coming from. Those 90s movies were very... Very much, very kind, very melodramatic in the way they portrayed their the thriller aspect of things. It's not very subtle, and I can see where people are coming from, especially with this latest trailer. But it, it it's hard to say. Uh, this could be good. I was interested in this. I like the other trailer, the one with uh, uh, that very uh that remix of whatever song that was. Um, what song is that? Voodoo in my blood. Uh, it's, it's a it's a it's a remix ver version that's very um, quiet and subdued. It's minimalistic and it works very well with that trailer. And um, the actual song that <laughs> that has a uh, actress Rosamund Pike in it in the music video uh, is much more is much more um, energetic. But uh, this, this version the version they use in the Snowman is very nice. Um, this latest trailer, yeah, I can see where people are coming from with it. So uh, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, I'll probably make I'm probably make this my Thursday night uh, movie. Either that or uh, I'll see what else is playing. But we'll see about this one. 
And then the last one, Tyler Perry's Boo 2, a Medea Halloween. Let's see what kind of shenanigans we're up to now. This Halloween, an unspeakable terror will take your breath away. Tyler Perry's making a new movie! Run for your lives! Where the people got killed? Are you crazy? It's gonna be super creepy and scary. That's why it's gonna be. Oh, that's the other thing. They have YouTube and Vine stars and Instagram stars as the cast. Why? Why are we continuing this story? The camera work looks even less... <laughs> like... Oh god, it looks like garbage! The ring. We're still making the ring jokes. What is this, a scary movie five? No, they made five. It's a scary movie seven. But you can't hide. I'm trying to be in They got you criminal Attempted murder. Me, bam. Hi, officer. She'll cut a witch. Because we needed the narrator to tell us the title. Uh, Corey Coleman has a term for uh, movies like this. Uh, I defer to him. This is his kind of, his this is the terminology I've heard him use all the time. Black foolishness. And yeah, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. That's pretty much nail on the head. Hit the nail on the head with that term. Black foolishness. And that's what happens when you get a guy growing up in the Chitlin circuit. Nothing against that. And I mean, that people, there's an audience for that. I am just not that audience. Oh, it's gonna be fun. Maybe I'll do. Maybe this will be my Thursday night review, so I can get it out of the way. Ugh. Jeez. Such garbage. And that's the thing. Tyler Perry is not. I don't. I, I don't. Yeah. I mean, Tyler Perry is not the best filmmaker, but at least his previous movies had some quality control. Here, it looks like it's shot on a freaking iPhone. It looks like crap. So yeah, Tyler Perry's Boo 2! I'm a Dia Halloween. Which doesn't make sense. Wouldn't, shouldn't it be Boo uh, uh, exclamation point 2? Why is it Boo 2 exclamation? It's so stupid. Anyway, that's about it for this week. 
which means it is time for the plugs. If you are listening to this podcast, you are most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatsNetworks.com. And if you want to check out all of our other fine programming, just go to G-U-M-B-I-E-CatNetworks.com. And you can find me there on my Dungeons & Dragons podcast, Tragic Missile, on my Japanese pop culture podcast, Majide, which I do from which I do with Mike Palace from Game Kiwi. Uh, fan of the podcast is still on hold for the time being, but we've got such great programming for you guys there. Just be sure to check it out and see what clicks there for you. We've, uh, and the best way to keep up to date with the podcast is to ensure that you're watch that you have the the little Gumby Cat logo. So if you see my orange bug chomping on some popcorn, staring at the movies with the little G with cat ears and tail, that means you are looking at the most up to date feed, and you can be assured that and that should ensure that you are listening to the most recent episodes of the podcast. So you so you can check us out on your various various podcast providers. We're we work through iTunes and Google Play. Uh, and if you don't see us on your podcast provider, be sure to let us know so we can add, a, add our podcast to, to whatever podcast service you use so that you can better follow us. And uh, if you want you can, and if you want to help us out, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review on whatever service you use so that other people will know to check us out and that, that hey, people like this thing. They should check it out too. Otherwise, you can always share us on social media. The social media home for Popcorn Junkie is facebook.com slash popcornjunkie. That's where the new announcements for episodes come out, when I'm seeing new movies in the theaters, my initial thoughts on a movie after I've seen it, announcements on all kinds of stuff. All the big stuff is through Facebook. And if you want to keep up to date with me, you can do so through Twitter at cornjunkiepod. And you can have the Facebook feed plus a couple of extra features, the trailer talk which i do with which, where i comment on the trailers that play before a new release and the munch along where i comment on a movie as i'm watching it so if you want that plus keep in touch with me directly you can do so there and if there's anything else you want to say to me any kind of messages you want me to relay any kind of feedback you want me to hear send all that to popcorn junkie podcast at gmail.com that about does it for this week until next time I'm John Bailey, and this is my last episode as a 28-year-old. I turned 29 on the 17th this week. So happy birthday to me. Happy birthday to me. You're getting old, you stupid son of a bitch. Just end the podcast. See you guys next time. The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by the M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork is provided by Nathio, N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nathio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork. attempt at telling the Groundhog's Day premise. I'm not sure how many people heard that. I think somebody's taking their trash out. Hold on. Uh, psychological thriller angle with the, with making...
There's Beaker the Popcorn Junkie Cat. Deciding to open his mouth again. Apparently he wants to be on the podcast. Hold on. Like I said, there's, there's a cat. There's a cat that I have to cut out of the podcast again. So let's get into the plugs. It means it's time. Da, da, screwing it up. Damn it.